1: Thanks for downloading the Ruler podcast, which is sponsored by Mosquito Bikes. Mosquito will be at the London Bike Show from the 13th to the 16th of February at the Excel Centre in London's Docklands. So drop by and see their range of custom bike brands, talk to them about bike fitting, and check out some great clothing, accessory and nutrition bargains. All at Stand LB1615. Welcome to the Ruler podcast with me, Jack Thurston. This is the podcast for issue 44 of Ruler magazine, the first issue of um, 2014. And here with me at the Ruler offices to talk about the issue is uh, assistant editor Andy McGrath. Happy New Year to you, Andy. Happy New Year. And uh, first time contributor, Tom Isit. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Tom, you've got a tremendous piece about a little-known bike race a long time ago but um before we get on and, and talk about that this is your first piece in the in, in the magazine but you've been around in the in the journalism world for a while well, tell us <coughs> your background and how you came to uh, to end up writing for Ruler.
0: yeah well i've been a freelance journalist for the best part of 30 years mostly doing stuff about motorcycles originally um i gave that up and became a boating journalist is there a boating equivalent of Rouleur? Uh, yes, and I work for it. It's uh, a magazine called Boat International. Um, yeah. And it's very high-end, uh, mostly super yachts we write about, and exquisite beautiful, yeah, super Have you yachts. got any...
1: Does it tend to have pictures where there aren't any boats in, but there's, like, a bit of waste paper... Sort of blowing along a a dusty highway. Uh,
0: No, it's... uh, So it's it's, not really the equivalent. It's not the equivalent. It's it's fairly close in some respects, but, um, yeah, it's a little more literal than ruler is. Okay, well, from
1: boat international to ruler. Andy? Yeah? We've got a competition winner, haven't we? We should announce this, this first bit of business um, on the podcast. Because on the last podcast, which was the book special one... I think it was that one, um, or maybe That's it was right. the one before issue forty-three. Anyway, there was a competition to um, win a copy of the Ruler Tour de France hundredth edition, um, or 100th, no hundredth edition of the Tour de France annual. Mm. And the lucky winner of that is John O. That's right. Uh, yeah. And what's the um, what's the answer to the question? It was the question was. Who are the oldest and the youngest riders in last year's tour?
2: And the answer was Jens Voigt and Danny van Poppel. Right. So are we uh, letting him him know and getting in touch and hoping boat? he
1: doesn't live in um, the Pacific Islands or somewhere like that? He's going to have to charter a uh, well a boat from your magazine to, to send. I'm the sure you could find
0: something suitable <laughs> on
1: its on its way. So well done. John O, sorry, it's taken a little bit of time to announce your success, but no doubt it's all the sweeter. Um, something we're starting to do in the Rulo podcast, and we're going to we're going to continue it this time, is to ask our participants in the in the podcast for their favourite photo or, or spread of photos in the magazine, um, and why it's their it's their favourite.
0: Tom, well, for me, the um, my favourite spread was the Parakari. Uh, stone roadside markers so, so
1: which one which picture we, we, we're talking about it's the
0: opening spread of that okay. article okay. Um, written by Colin O'Brien I believe um, and it's just something I never expected to see in a cycling race <laughs> um, and there is something uh, rather lovely about these roadside markers I think um, and they're a a w- kind
1: of kilometre markers yeah, aren't they yeah, yeah
0: exactly that and he's collected them from all over Italy and um, and has put them in his nearby park. And it's just mad. I mean, it's yeah, it's, mad. <laughs> it's fascinating right, great. and great. really interesting. interesting and, and there's an image, I think, yeah, yeah really. Yeah,
1: no, it's funny to see them all together. Mm. We'll, we'll come to that, come to that story uh, in, in a bit. Andy, what's your spread of the, uh, of the issue?
2: Well, I was going to be really cheeky and not go for a photograph at all. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go for Tom Jay's uh, spread illustration on page... 70, which opens Le Circuit de Champ de bataille that piece about um, a race around the battlefields immediately post-World War One, And the problem in the press process is how do you Ill- um, illustrate a race where there are, are of course, no photos, um, and it's pretty much 100 years on. Um, but luckily we got Tom, who also worked on the Centenary Tour de France annual, to do this fantastic... Uh, Illustration depicting the brokenness, uh, as well as the geography and all the key, key facts um, as well. And his illustrations continue in the feature. And I think we were saying earlier, it, it really brings it together very well.
1: Hmm. So Do you think we'll
2: be seeing more illustration in Rouleau? Because this is something that
1: Rouleau's um, much lamented little brother, privateer, uh, the mountain bike mag, sadly no longer with us, they did a lot of illustration a lot of interesting work with illustration didn't they and uh, to good effect
2: yeah I'd like to see more in there I think um, different variations too and not even just illustrations we had a comic in uh, a Ferdi Kubler comic strip about 15 issues ago and I thought that was great if we can keep impressing and surprising people uh, with you know quality illustrations or or comics that would be great as well well, I always like um,
1: magazines that are a bit like a sort of cabinet of curiosities where you're not quite sure what's going to be in there and that came out very well in the um, in the Tour de France annual with various bits of ephemera photographed mm. and, and sort of pasted in so it has a little bit of a kind of yeah, cabinet of curiosities or scrapbook feel about things I mean mm. with, with print, you know, in this battle with digital media it's one of the things that I think doesn't work so well on the screen um, whereas in, in print it's actually in front of you Yeah I like this um, image um, by Tim Kern. It's, maybe it's a famous image. I don't know if it's been seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, of, is this um, Juan Antonio Fletcher on a training ride? That's right. Um, with his sort of blurred um, image of him, uh, double page, spread black and white, kind of gloomy. It's um, clearly in the middle of winter, and there is um, a car upside down in a ditch <laughs> on the side of a very straight road, which... I mean, I'm thinking, how did that car get to be there? Um, we can see, I think what we can see is, can we see the. Um, I mean, unless Tim Cohen put it there in the sort of classic phony war photographer sort of. <laughs> it's actually the, Tim's
2: uh, own car, yeah. Uh, that's a real commitment to the job, isn't it? <laughs> I, know,
1: I'm thinking of, I was thinking of the sort of the ragged doll sort of thrown in front of the. Pair uh, of
0: shoes uh, in the pool yeah, of blood, yep. yeah.
1: Exactly, that kind of shot. Um, but no, it's this car here. We can see some tracks. Tire tracks, possibly a sort of skid, skid going down there. Whether the driver of the car just got bored driving down this long, flat, straight road and just sort of drifted off.
0: Into I've the done side. exactly the same thing. It's, it's two, <laughs> and, two um, tires on black ice and two tires <laughs> not, and suddenly you're sideways okay, up the road. So okay. I'm, I'm guessing that's well, possibly what happened. Thanks, thanks for the forensics. <laughs>
1: but um, no, I mean, I, I, I sometimes do see this sort of thing. I, I saw um, one of those. Um, what are those lorries called that move other vehicles? Not like a, a low tug. loader,
0: low loaders, just like
1: a tug, but for 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 um right. See, I'm getting into your world. <laughs> <laughs> Boat speak, Boat a speak. sort of tug van uh, with winches on. A sort of winch on a got a great big hook on the back, and it looks like it's a yep. very powerful. And obviously, it is big tow truck. Big, of big tow truck. As tow yeah. truck. Yeah. one of these on the, on its side in a hedge. Oops. Outside oh. Lechlade. Um, with all the with all the floods um, <laughs> i don 't know I, I think as a cyclist there 's something quite nice about seeing an upside down car in a ditch <laughs> um, but you know it 's also a nice nice photograph with all the lines, good
0: composition um, uh, and a lot and of traffic there. on that road as well mm. it doesn 't look like a fun place to be training no
1: and, and it 's interesting because um Juan Antonio is not really adopting the primary position <laughs> he's today, he 's <laughs> <laughs> um, right on on the line that demarcates the the verge from the from the asphalt. So um, he needs to do some cycle training. I think the
0: CTC need to get in touch.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, if they get used, they get used to um, riding on closed roads. You see, so yep. they don't know what to do when there's a car or
2: mm. about. I bet he doesn't stop at red lights uh, all the time either, <laughs> or indicate. Not during, or during, or with his not during races. I think. <laughs> Scandalous.
1: Although they do have to stop at um, level crossings, don't they? Oh yeah. That is one of the things that happens in bike
2: races that can't be. Sort of catered for. Mm. I really enjoy that on the occasions that it does happen, and, it, and the ones I can only remember are Peru Bay. Actually, yeah. they must have happened in loads of other races, and then they always try to restart. There's been a breakaway with the same advantage, but inevitably, never do they try. To and, right. do, do they try and restart? I
0: thought it's just, I think you know, tough, tough, yeah. But then in the past you've had examples of people climbing through trains with their bicycles and out the other side and all this kind of stuff. Well, there's
1: an extraordinary bit of um, CCTV footage that was doing the rounds a couple of months ago about a woman cycling along towards um, a crossing and it's flashing and sort of. I think it has come down actually. She somehow managed to skirt around it. The train comes along and she puts on the brakes so fast that her back wheel, Mm. she does an endo, and, and manages to sort of Inches. not get completely yeah. smashed to smithereens and then sort of, sort of cycles off. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, be careful out there <laughs> with the level crossings. <laughs> right, let's um, turn to the contents of the magazine. Tom, you're writing about a stage race that takes place in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. Yep, 1919. Extraordinary. I mean, people, I think, who are familiar with cycling cycle racing will know that there was the 1919 Paris-Roubaix and that that yep. was the race that caused Eugène Christophe to say this is the hell of the north.
0: I have heard people say that actually that description the hell of the north was applied to the area rather than uh-huh. a specific race right. um, and that actually the circuit de chaumont de Bataille as it's known Maybe that was the origin of that. Interesting. Um, Did you manage to pin that down in your research? I'm still trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, what were they thinking? Well, it was the classic thing where a newspaper needed to increase its circulation, so they thought they would organize a race after the, the First World War around the battlefields. Um, there was a huge tourist industry immediately after the war for. People to come and visit the battlefields. Really, is that not was, regarded as bad taste? Well, the, the problem was that most most people killed never came home. So relatives, in order okay. to have some kind of closure, they very often went to the battlefields. Um,
1: so it was a kind of—I mean, you could call it tourism, but it, it was, was very much a well—not like tourism. It was a memorial like two weeks tourism in, uh, in, in uh, Tenerife. It's, uh, yeah, it was memorial going tourism. To see where your family. Had, had disappeared into the,
0: yeah. the the mud. Yeah, and Michelin produced a, a set of guidebooks in 1919 for people who were motoring around <laughs> these yeah. battlefields. It's quite extraordinary um, to our modern way of thinking, but that's how it was in those days. Um, so the French newspaper Le Petit Journal decided they were going to have a race around the battlefields, um, and they did. In horrific conditions and on terrible roads, there was a political
1: edge to uh, organising race as well, wasn't there? As there often was in those days, <clears throat> on the early days of these um, big bike races, to sort of demarcate territory.
0: Absolutely. Um, at the end of the war, uh, the French got Alsace-Lorraine back from the Germans, who had annexed it seventy years earlier, um, and this <clears throat> this race ran all the way along the the new boundary as if to say, you know, this is now ours. It's like beating the bounds. Exactly that, exactly that. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was part of it. I mean, all this was happening before the Treaty of Versailles had even been signed. So, you know, this was, this was literally minutes after the end of the war. And there's an influenza epidemic raging. Yes.
1: So, <laughs> so I mean, I can't, I'm almost <laughs> amazed that there were roads at all.
0: Well, there weren't, really. Um, you know, most of the roads were dirt tracks, before the war, and were now filled with shell holes and, you know, the leftovers of warfare. So, yeah, the, the conditions were horrendous.
1: And it was a multi-day, a five-day race. Five-day Five, race. And very, very long stages.
0: Yeah. Was that typical of
1: the time, or were these particularly long, or were they particularly bad, given the conditions? Because in the 1920s... Races were getting longer and longer, weren't they? It was that era of sort of 350-kilometre, 400-kilometre stages. Yeah,
0: I mean, Bordeaux, Paris, for instance, you know, that was 500-odd kilometres. Um, so th- these weren't particularly long by the standards of the time. But if you could imagine, you know, cycling ac- across a ploughed field for 300 kilometres, that's almost what they had to do. And they also had problems with knowing where they were going because there were no road signs, there was no road book, And there are instances of people having to get off their bikes and search through the rubble to find out where they actually were and where they had to go next.
1: But yet it attracted the top riders of the time. I mean, sadly, many of the best riders of the pre-war era didn't make it through the war or, I suppose, retired during the war. Um, So it was a a diminished peloton.
0: Yeah, um, and a lot of the French riders perished in the First World War. There were, I mean, I think we've... Found the names of something like seventy of them who who died, um, but this race attracted some quite serious riders. Uh, Oscar Egg was, you know, one of the greatest champions of Switzerland. There were, there were some great French and Belgian riders racing, mainly because it had a huge purse. This race, they, you know, it was an eight thousand franc prize for the winner, mm. which was a huge amount of money mm. in those days.
1: And so did it have the desired effect for the circulation of Le Petit Journal?
0: That I don't know. They didn't do it again because it turned out to be (laughs) such hard work. Um, So Le Petit Journal continued um, publishing for decades afterwards, but um, they didn't organise another race like this. The the next one they did was a flying race. Mm, (laughs) Right. And do you think the reason why we
1: don't know much about this race... Thanks to your researches, we now do know much more about it. Do you think that's because it was not organised by uh, Lotto and Degrange, or and, and, the, and the myth makers? What, why did it fall through the, the, the cracks in the floorboards of
0: cycling history? I think it was such a brutal experience for everyone concerned that nobody was. would t- that
1: add to the appeal to people trying to memorialise sort of such an such an event? I s- Are there no photographs.
0: Well, I suppose that's that's part of it. I think. Uh, There were other things um, that were relevant. For instance, the Tour of Flanders, um, it it kind of trod on the toes of the Tour of Flanders in in some respects um, and that had far more prestige and history behind it. And I think that, you know, there there wasn't room for both of those Mm. races. I think Mm. it had to be one or the other Mm. um, and the Tour of Flanders won. And there
2: were some... fantastic stories in here of, uh, <clears throat> of overcoming adversity uh, through the terrible conditions for example I was looking at an illustration of a rider who donned a woman's fur coat uh, to make <laughs> it to the finish but I was wondering as there were no photographs and very little um, mm. testimony how did you research uh, all these things and get all these fantastic details?
0: Well, fortunately, it was very well reported by Le Petit Journal itself. Right. Um, and all of those copies are available in the French National Archive.
2: Okay.
0: So I spent a lot of time with my friend Savanne translating uh, ah, right. French newspapers <laughs> <laughs> into English to, to glean the details. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a lot of rummaging through the, the bibliothèque nationale i see and that's online it's not that's in paris online. or anything is it? no no like that good. fortunately that's online i didn't <laughs> actually have to go to paris to do that oh, so that's uh, handy yeah
2: had you heard about this race andy not really which is why it's a delight to have in the magazine too i mean if i'd heard of it it was
0: only in the kind of vaguest sense well i only i i stumbled across it when i was reading um an e-book called A Hundred Tours, A Hundred Tales by Suze Clementson and she mentioned just in a paragraph that this race had happened I thought that sounds really interesting so started to do some research and that's kind of where it started.
1: Yeah,
0: and um, I haven't read that ebook. Is it good? I love it, yeah. yeah. It's excellent. Yeah. Very interesting. Oh, it's, one
1: of, it's on my list. Um, I think she's quite interesting because she's francophone and yep. therefore is able to draw on a lot of materials that the, uh, <laughs> the rest of anglophone researchers and, and journalists don't. And you often mm. find, I think, in the English-speaking world uh, or the English-writing world about cycling, particularly about continental cycling, the same sort of stories seem to go round and round and round. And it's almost as if everyone's just referring to someone else's yep. um, account, which is ba- backed up by someone else's, and then you end up in a sort of circle, yep. and you're never quite sure what's actually the truth about the matter. know um, yeah.
0: these things become carved in stone yeah, where they yeah, may not necessarily...
1: Yeah. Andy, you are a young mm-hmm. member of the ruler team, I think it's fair to say. Very youthful chap. Um, but Thank you. <laughs> in researching this story, you must have felt like an old geezer. That's um, right. Your, your story in the, in, in the magazine.
2: Well, the opening story is uh, it's about the junior peace race and part one anyway is being embedded with the ODP which is the Olympic development programme, so it's a best 16 to 17-year-old British cyclist. And I think, luckily, I'm still just about young enough to kind of remember the teenage drive and what it was like, because it isn't isn't just um, about their ambitions and their dreams and their goals to ultimately all succeed in professional cycling, which, frankly, brutally, one or two may have successful careers, but the rest won't. But it's also just about being a teenager and, say, the awkwardness of that sometimes. It was funny, uh, say, on the start lines, the pro peloton normally rushes out of their gleaming team buses with a minute to spare to avoid us annoying hacks or just because they have it dialled in, that routine. But 15, 20 minutes before the start, the whole of the junior Peace race peloton will be there. Getting anxious, cold. Getting cold. <laughs> and... Barring a few, they all keep in their own circles, either silent or chatting to one another. But you can sense the anxiety, and every day is so important to them. It's a really nice reminder, because sometimes with the well-tour pros, it is very business-like, mm. and it does become a routine. Of course, because they're doing sometimes hundred race days every year. But with these, and I went to junior Paraguay too. They really value putting on that uh, that national jersey every single time and they're really fighting for everything it was a strange experience because a junior peace race is in northern Bohemia in, Czech, in the Czech Republic about an hour's train ride from Prague which is how I got there actually uh, the Prague metro is fantastic but anyway <laughs> um, it's a strange place because it's in Lytme uh, I hope that's the right pronunciation uh, it's a beautiful Bohemian typically a Bohemian town but the HQ is a race HQ. It's in Terezin, which is a few kilometres down the road. And that was the scene of a Holocaust atrocity, basically. Uh, it was turned into a ghetto, and I think a quarter of the people in there perished. So the disparity between those two things and the fact that Terezin doesn't seem to have recovered at all, it's, it's chilling going round the ghetto museum, which is what I did with uh, Matt Winston, the ODP coach, and Martin, the mechanic there, it's like going to the Imperial War Museum. It it isn't something we should ever forget, and it it's always shocking. Yeah, um, and the riders don't see that, but they don't have to because they still get the impression that it's an eerie, empty place. Like the grass isn't hasn't been cut for most of it. It's it's just quite strange. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the um, Olympic
1: development program. Is that a is that the conveyor belt that's been pushing out? all these great British riders over the last, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years? Is this a sort of Peter Keane initiative? Is this the thing that we have to thank for all the uh, all the medals that have been raining down on British cyclists over the last uh, few years?
2: I'm not s- certain if it came along with the Academy. I think the Academy with Roy Ellingworth um, and Peter Keane, uh, that was first. But this has certainly been along the last five years, I okay. think. Okay. Well, that's why I was curious because recent world medalists like Lucy Garner and um, Eleanor Barker have come through here. And Matt, the coach, was saying that when they first joined, they were very quiet, they're quite shy. But he also enjoys, enjoyed seeing them not just change as cyclists into well beaters, but changing as people who are now you know eloquent, bubbly, everything you'd um, expect from an adult. Yeah. And is there a typical
1: route into this programme for the riders that you could discern amongst those that you um, spent
2: time with? Into the ODP? Yeah. I think the big fight for for selection on the ODP, because some riders in the team are already part of the programme and some can be drafted in from outside, is in the British Junior Racing Series. So they'll be all the Brits will be going at it hammer and tongs. And then, that's quite funny too, because uh, as soon as they're picked for an international race... The mantra is to always ride as a team, no matter what happens. So you go from potentially uh, flicking your rival in the ditch in a British race to having him help you in Tech Republic. But that's cycling too, isn't it? As well, I suppose. You spent some time with Tao
1: Gagan Hart, um, who is much talked about, um, not least because he's a Londoner from Hackney. Um, what do you reckon?
2: Well, first to be, be a pl- star.
1: Yeah, it already is a star.
2: The pronunciation, I'm not sure how to say his name. I think it's Theo Jockenhart. Oh, right, okay. But certainly when I was at Junior Père Roubaix and his name was on the PA because he was uh, on the podium, the French commentator was absolutely butchering it. (laughs) I heard Theo John Mingham, and I'm sure he'll get a lot of name problems. Um, in the next few years.
1: Well, we've been put a better, <clears throat> put a call into uh, Phil Liggett to get the uh, correct pronunciation. <laughs> Will you do that, Tom? Because <laughs> yeah. I've obviously bowed it up. <laughs> well, I'm just going to interrupt the podcast to tell you that the correct pronunciation we have discovered is Teo Gagan Hart. That's Teo Gagan Hart. So, um, I guess Andy had it half right, and I had it half right. Apologies, Teo. Back to the podcast.
2: But yes, he is of that group I suppose he is already the outstanding talent. I mean and he's he's got it already. He's got that star a star quality. It's kind of hard to pinpoint, but there was a time when he was just standing on the podium and he had his arms around one of the girls and he's got a David Miller type way of moving, a confidence that isn't becoming of a sixteen year old. I mean, I wish I'd been that confident when I was sixteen, seventeen. Uh, and he's very intelligent, and not just um, in a bike race, but outside of it. I, mean, I think he got some very good A levels, and and he's naturally friendly. Like um, on the flight back, the easyJet flight back from Prague, I remember that he came back and sat and chatted with me, which pro cyclists wouldn't do, and it because they don't have to. Um, but he's telling me about the essay he was writing for English, A level things <laughs> like that. So he's got his head screwed on well, and I think he he
1: could go far. Yeah. And the racing. I mean, there's a, 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 a quote in your piece about the red mist. The red, oh, the dreaded red mist. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is sort of basically racing at full gas all the time mm-hmm. and blowing yourself up, being a particular problem, I suppose, for young, enthusiastic riders that the tactical um, now hasn't quite yet Taken over, they're still quite headstrong. Does that does that affect the racing? Was it entertaining racing? Were you able to get a sense of um, what was going on in the races, even because I suppose they they're not televised. No, Are no. They? So it's a you can probably see affair. what's going on.
2: No, we were the only journalists there actually. Um, yeah. But I was mainly in Team Cars, either with uh, I think I was in with Holland, GB, and Denmark. It was a strange junior race because uh, I remember being in the car with Matt Winston, the coach, and he was saying this isn't how it should be there weren't that many attacks going whereas normally you can't stop them apparently but uh, denmark being the strong force on the junior scene controlling everything in a <laughs> in a u.s postal style just without any of the bad connotations that has <laughs> or a
1: team sky a team style. sky so without any of the bad con- oh no sorry <laughs> edit, edit that bit out <laughs> um
2: uh, there's a big mountain on stage three uh climbed twice and that that had a huge effect, that exploded the bunch and that was impressive to see, that was that could have been an adult race kind of the way they were dealing with it tactically and the effect it had on the riders, yeah that could easily have been riders 10 years older in the world tour because it ended up being a group of 6, 7 who were left and that was real racing yeah
0: mm. a very interesting piece, I hadn't had no idea about that aspect of the sport at all um, so from my point of view it's very interesting to read
1: yeah, I mean, It is something that I think Rouleau as a magazine has done more than, than any other publication that I can think of is to look at the pyramid yeah. that, that leads to you know, the, the top of the sport to see how it is that riders are made
0: yeah.
2: um, and
1: it's yeah. an interesting part of
2: that story but, Andy the different, well, well that's the interesting thing, they're doing things differently like they're making the teenagers Build their bikes before the race. Mm. And even having Matt Winston as coach, who is a 26 year old, that is completely unorthodox. I mean, normally DSs are these old, broad, 55 year old somethings with cigarettes hanging out of their mouths and bellowing on the loudspeaker. Okay, that's a stereotype. But you know what I mean? I mean, they're Mm. ex racers who have been there, done it, and got the t shirt. So he brings something completely new, and I'll be very interested to see where he goes in the future too because it's his future that should be considered too i think he said that he wouldn't mind eventually possibly going to the olympics as a coach at some point and with his current progression i i think that's very possible yeah well you heard it here
1: first (laughs) and you can read about it in the magazine um let's talk about kilometer rocks um kilometer stones milestones (laughs) bollards they are (laughs) bollards well that's the thing you see we talk in kilometres don't we um, in in um, yeah, we do but the English word for these things is milestones Mm -hmm. so these milestones have been collected from around Italy maybe even around the continent of Europe um, and assembled into a kind of memorial garden in the foothills of the Dolomites, in uh, Trentino province of northern Italy by a chap called Dario Pegoretti, who's uh, no relation of the famous frame builder of the same name. And each milestone, um, it looks (coughs) as though there's about several dozen, has been dedicated to a particular rider, and, um, and he's also, he's, he's sort of tried to make a certain connection, hasn't he, the collector, with the rider. So that um, the one that he's dedicated to, Laurent Fignon, goes slightly yellow in the, uh, <laughs> it's a certain kind of limestone that goes slightly yellow in the rain. Yeah. Um, I like collections, Tom. Yep. When, when you collect a lot of the same thing in the same place, as long as it's not identical, you appreciate the milestone of the milestone (laughs) in a way that you wouldn't when you just look at one. That's true. Over last summer, I went to um, a sort of steam rally in the Forest of Dean, which had all kinds of um, steam engines, some that moved and some that were just sort of static, that would be driving some kind of uh, apparatus Mm. in the pre-electric age. Um, And there was a guy there with a stand showing off his collection of porcelain and glass sort of insulators that would sit on the top of electricity pylons or telephone pylons to sort of, mm. that the wires would go around those to, to sort of insulate the whole thing. You know, the kind of things that yep. they're usually sort of white. Yep. But he's got this collection from across Europe and across the world. And there's apparently a whole scene of people who swap <laughs> these things, <laughs> climb up and electrocute themselves, fishing them down. And But once you see about... 40 or 50 or 60 as as he had on on his shelves, all slightly different, different colours, different shapes different sizes, you start thinking about something that you would never have given a second glance.
0: Yes (laughs) I I got the same reaction to
1: looking at this piece I'd seen milestones and they're always quite nice to look at a milestone but I never really paid much attention to its shape or its design or its colour but now, mm. now I think I will.
0: They are quite extraordinary, and the differences I've found quite fascinating. Yeah, but what sort of madman does that? I mean, that's the—is <laughs> he, he thieving them? Are they stolen
1: property? Or no, no. People have donated them? them. Well, have they thieved them? Donated, yeah. <laughs> Possibly.
0: Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say <laughs> there might um, be
1: some missing milestones <laughs> around the place.
0: <laughs> it just seems like an utterly bonkers thing to do, um, but that's. <laughs> why it makes good reading i think it's um, i
2: think that cycling is a, a sport that feeds obsession yep. and obsessions so in that respect you think it's we're cycling, all
0: obsessive in one way or another
2: well if you're serious cycling fans uh, some some can be yeah mm. um so I think that takes the edge of the bonkersness just a little bit um, it's still bizarre though
1: so which do you think comes first the, the obsession or the cycling does cycling drive people to obsession or does cycling give a, already obsessive people a, a good healthy outlet for their
2: obsessive um, behaviours good question um, I would say cy- cycling certainly gave me the outlet to be obsessive so, so perhaps there's an element within you You just need to find the right pastime or sport. Find the
1: medium. Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm reminded also of the um, the piece in the magazine a few years ago um, about speed play pedals (laughs) and the guy who's got who who runs every single one. But he's got no, he's got a big collection of 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 pedals of the last eighty years. So this is the the guy who basically reinvented the pedal, Mm. if you like by attaching most of the pedal to the shoe. Yep. Um, but he's got all the, all the sort of um, classic, you know, leotard-type uh, rat-trap pedals on, on, a, on a display case. And there was mm. a nice double-page spread, as I recall, uh, looking at all these different pedals. And again, once they're all aligned together, um, you start to pay them more attention than you would if there was just one. There. Yep. Do you have a
0: collection? Do you collect anything, Tom? I get bored of my collection. What have you collected? I and start got bored and then of? get bored. Uh, I have a small collection of arrowheads. Oh, right. Um,
1: like ancient ones. Ancient ones more. That modern you found ones. in the woods? N- things,
0: a variety of, of them. Um, archery is something that I'm quite interested okay. in. Oh, that must be interesting. That's again another sad, obsessive hobby. Um, How many have you got? I have. Two bows. I have a traditional um, yeah. long bow.
1: But how many arrowheads? Oh, arrowheads. I
0: have. I don't know, eighty something right. like that. All different sorts, different ages. And do you, display, do
1: you display them in a nice
0: case? I somehow? started to, and then I thought, no, this is no, this is no way to carry on. I'm a grown man. Stop it. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> they're in a drawer somewhere. So they're in a drawer somewhere.
2: <laughs> Andy, have you uh, got any collections? Uh, the only thing uh, that I collect, Jack, are uh, the most inane, pointless and geeky cycling facts in my own head to uh, <laughs> bore my friends with... Uh, no, you had any new
1: acquisitions
2: <laughs> of course, to the collection it, lately? It's always ongoing. Uh, Care to share? Bizarre winners of South American races. It, it's funny what you find sticks in your head, though, sometimes, uh, just from reading mm. cycling websites. and like I have a memory for who won a Giro in that year, but all the all stuff I did for my degree, like uh, Hamlet and essays I wrote I can't remember the, the, uh, any quote it's terrible I'm kind of forgetting the important things aren't I yeah. I have a collection that I kind of
1: start each year actually around about this time of the year and then it never really um, makes it till the end of the year so the collection always just begins each year um, and then is somehow lost to the to the four winds mm-hmm. and it's it's a collection of those wrappers of um, blood oranges in particular <laughs> From, from Sicily, you know, um, very nicely designed sort mm. of tissue paper. Yeah. Um, you know, when you get, you see the, the, the blood oranges or other kinds of yeah. premium citrus fruit, <laughs> probably I might diversify into uh, other... other
0: amoretti next, sure. Yeah, well, I don't
1: know, I think they're all... They're all the, I don't think you get so much variety or interesting design, do Maybe you? Not, Maybe I not, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think um, oranges are healthier than biscuits, um. aren't they? <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I, I collect those. Um, I would like to um, yeah, make it through a few years and, and see what I can come up with. Well, why not? Maybe this should be a call, because um, they're very lightweight. So if you're listening to the Ruler podcast in Sicily, for instance, where a lot of these um, citrus fruits are grown, um, and you want to send a few samples from your rubbish bin, <laughs> um, send them to me at Ruler... Um, in
2: uh, Hoban, you'll find the address on the website, ruler.cc But also, if you're the editor of a fruit-based magazine, in a few years uh, track down Jack Thurston and uh, do a feature on his many
0: um,
1: orange wrappers Have you written for any fruit-based magazines, Tom?
0: Uh, No, I haven't, (laughs) (laughs) Is there a Ruler equivalent of fruit-based magazines? There must be, surely. Surely, yeah.
1: Oh dear. Oh dear. Let's talk about um... Uh, photography and um, the feature, which is entitled "A Brief History of Cycling Photography: Speed." Now, this suggests to me that this is part of a series.
2: Is this is that right, Andy? Is this is... that's right? This is the first in um, an eight-long series from Duncan Forbes, who is the uh, director of the Photo Museum in Winterthur, in Switzerland. Um, he had this idea of um, this column. Uh, explaining more about photography and cycling, kind of connecting um, a lot of the basic feelings and um, emotions and things we see in the sport to photography. And he's picked uh, speed as the first one, which is one of the hardest things for a camera to capture. I mean, how can you possibly get in one frame something that is always moving? I mean, how can you capture speed? Um, do you even think, Jack and Tom, that speed can be truly captured by a camera?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't. There's a word for the experience of speed or the experience of motion and it, um, it's kinesthetic, and, and cycling is a is a has got a kinesthetic quality as does running or you know diving off a high board into a swimming pool, um, and I yeah that, there is some trouble to be had in, in rendering that. Um, I think there's trouble to be had in rendering that in, in words. Um, mm. It can be done. I think people have done it. I think photography is actually one of the harder uh, mediums to render that kinesthetic quality of cycling in. And I think he did. That does, uh, Duncan Forbes does discuss the challenges um, particularly because I think the early photographers were fascinated by the possibility of photography as a way of stopping motion yeah mm. and the early photographers you know were desperate to catch things that the human eye couldn't see so famously the, the it was the bet about whether a horse i can't remember it's all four legs leave the ground or all four legs are on the ground when a horse is galloping and that was that edward maybridge yeah it was um, he
0: yeah he did a series of photographs and he, to show the, the traditional Stubbs oil paintings where they're all four feet off the ground. Never happens. Um, never happens. Okay. whatever. they've always got a foot on the ground. I may have got that wrong, but that, that was the idea fence, of Maybridge.
1: Right. Yes. Um, and so it does seem as though a lot of cycling photography has that quality to it. I mean, not least because of the people who are commissioning and paying for cycling photography, which is magazines that have wanted to show, and newspapers that wanted to show the identity of the riders rather than just this kind of blur hmm. that you might use to portray speed
0: I've often found that the the mountain bike magazines do it so much better um, if you look at the photography in some of the mountain bike magazines they get that impression of speed and movement um, far more than I think the road cycling ones do is
1: that because the cyclists that they're photographing are kind of six foot in the air
0: possibly something to do with it um and they have possibly more control over how they know where it's you know, going to happen where it's going to happen yeah, um, yeah. You know, obviously covering a stage race is very very difficult yeah um no it's
1: it's interesting um thinking about thinking about this the, the some of the early cubo futurist painters got a bit um of a thing about trying to portray the act of cycling and i think they did quite a good job of it um the more you abstract from sort of the highly representational, you know, yeah. photographic image, the more, in a way, you can convey uh, that feeling that's very intangible.
0: There's that very famous painting, I think it was by Picasso, of a nude going down a staircase, which is one of those cubious ones, which has an amazing feeling of motion. And yet, when you look and analyse it, it's just squares and shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about how. Um
1: Cycling is is presented in t v because it, I think actually it's quite linked to the limits of that Duncan describes in in the piece on on still images because I don't think you really get a very good sense from the still images of the speed of the cyclists, um, certainly in the Im- images that he's presented here, and i don't think you get a particularly good sense from the television footage of cycling as it's shown today. No. Uh, what what should be done about that? <laughs> do, or do you do you agree with me on that?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I've I've spent a lot of my life writing about motorcycles and going to MotoGP races, and I've seen a, a huge change in the way that it's covered on television. And you know, they now have onboard cameras. They have these um, gyroscopic onboard cameras, which give you a fantastic view of. What the rider is doing And you never really see that in cycling You know that they're descending fast But it's filmed from a helicopter you know, Many hundred metres up And so you don't get that kind of Fluid descent um, mm. And feeling of speed That you do in a MotoGP race For instance And I, I would love to see Some kind of onboard footage From cycling if it's possible But I don't know the technical
1: You know mm. Andy, what do you reckon? Do you think what, what could be improved with the technology that we've got at the minute?
2: Well, I think, firstly, it would be nice to just get the sound of the bunch passing sometimes, like in MotoGP or Formula One or anything with a motor you hear. It would be nice to capture that. My knowledge of uh, cycling TV history, broadcasting history, isn't great, but I don't think it's really changed much in the last 20 years. You still just have a number at the top telling you how many k... To go and the breakaway, uh, there can be so much more done with. Say with F1, you could have potentially, possibly, race radio uh, on the TV. You could have certain riders' heart rates on the TV, which I think mm. they tried. They even did ten years that. ago.
1: Did they? What, what happened to that?
2: Was that not perceived as something that
1: was useful or informative or interesting, or was it? I think it was sequencing? forty
2: as well. Uh, it was 40 at times. Oh, Cause right. I think okay. sometimes you had a yeah. rider and his heart rate would be showing zero beats per minute, and other times it would be <laughs> 300 if it was going past some pylons yeah. or something. So they'd maybe put it on hold until it was accurate. But that would be interesting to see. There can be a lot more done, and mountain biking and BMX and things like that are starting to have kind of GoPro runs, yeah. which does offer a lot more. I mean, it would be great to see a technical descent kind of nailed by an able descender. Uh, with a camera on his forks, yeah, so I suppose it's also about the lightness of the filming technology mm. to enable that uh, without unbal- unbalancing the bicycle I mean, I, there's a lot the right a hand. lot
1: of time in the um, in a bike race that is quite boring on the on the TV mm. um, yeah. up to you know the last one minute in some <laughs> st- some stages of, a, of stage races at least if you had cameras on helmets or on the bikes, you know you'd get you'd get a portray a little bit more what's going on in in the race you'd be able to show riders working their way back up um you'd be able to show the proximity of the riders have with one another in the peloton which would be would be, would be quite educational to people watching that they would understand a little bit more about the the nuances of the sport by just seeing it
0: do you think the riders may object to that, though? Because, you know, you would also see who's soft-pedalling and chatting to his mates and not actually doing an awful lot of work.
2: Or who's fighting. Any infringements in the oh. bunch would could e- more easily be picked up upon yeah. by the commissaires. Yeah. Uh, but I think it would be... It's more and more that I hear from interviewees, oh, I bet it looked easy on TV, but actually it wasn't. Like, if you can see that cut mm. and thrust, maybe the fight for positions in the final 5K or... Diving down a mountainside, like on the uh, kind of on the edge of traction with your wheels, that would yeah. give a new element to it.
1: Yeah, I mean it'd be great to have um, sort of on board cameras for lead out trains and that kind of thing in, the, in, a, in, in you know sprint finishes. It'd be extraordinary mm-hmm. yeah. uh, to see you know how how that space is found um, by by riders in the in the last you know five hundred meters. I also thought that we're not too far away from having drones um, with cameras on board. In addition to the two helicopters that are obviously quite expensive to run and um, noisy and all the rest of it, um, you could have a lot of drones, um, and they they probably could come in a lot closer than a uh, <laughs> than a helicopter can come to uh, to take. It's
0: yeah. going to require some skillful flying from somebody but um
1: well you know ex-riders <laughs> could be you know you could have sean yates um piloting, know, piloting the drones
0: yep
2: it makes me think of, of star wars
0: to be Mark
1: honest yeah or drone wars drone wars yeah. yeah well it's just unmanned um unmanned helicopters well if you've got a good idea for how cycling television coverage can be improved um
2: drop us a line um, and we'll tell the UCI and they'll say no, no. <laughs> well they might say yes in a few years time yeah. 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 okay great well I think that just about
1: wraps it up I mean there's a, a lot more in the magazine we've got um, the second half of Andrew Curry's feature on the Arctic race featuring um, photographs by Tim Curl um, very scenic Part of Norway, by the looks of things, with some very enthusiastic locals. Um, we've got columns by Matt Seaton and Robert Miller. And we've got, what else have we got in here? Oh, yeah, here we are. Uh, the, uh, the Danes. The yes. Danes. What are the Danes writing about, Andy?
2: Well, Morton Ogbo and Jakob Christian Sorensen yeah.
1: have done a piece. Sorry, about, uh, Guy just always the refers to them as the Danes.
2: They are our Danes. It's a loving term. It uh, is. A term of affection. We <laughs> love Danes. Uh, they've done a piece on. Wasella Bonfanti, who is RCS's source of sure information, so she's a conduit between the um, race organisation and the teams. So she passes it all on. Um, it's it's very interesting. It's uh, well, absolutely fascinating insight
0: into how these things are run. Because again, as a a relative amateur, I I have no idea how these things are put together um and to see you know that there's one lady with four radios and a phone kind of pulling it all together i found found fascinating that's the other thing i mean she's a lady and cycling
2: is a traditionally chauvinist Mm. sport but i didn't even she can multitask that's it you see that's what it's all about well (laughs) well, but yeah i didn't even pick up she was um a she until i just reread it about an hour ago i was like oh yeah of course. So.
1: <laughs> well, the photo, the photo spread of her with the umbrella didn't, didn't did give it away. It's a giveaway, but... <laughs> There's something about her that, that reminds me of that um, police officer character played by Francis McDormand in Fargo.
0: Ah, you uh, see, I had her down as Blanche from Coronation Street. OK. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you can make your own mind up um, when you take a look at issue 44 of Ruler magazine. Thanks to Andy McGrath and Tom Isit. Cheerio.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,